From the impact of Pope Francis's apology to the implications of General Jonathan Vance's guilty plea, it's been a busy week, and Mercedes Stevenson covered it all on the latest episode of The West Block. We say good morning to Mercedes on the program right now. Uh, good morning and happy Tuesday to you, Mercedes. Good morning. Great to talk to you. Great to, to have you back. And, and that's something that we want to kick things off with. You know, we, we're going to focus on this week's busy episode of the West Block. But you have uh, been out of town, out of the country for a number of days, have not been on our program. Tell us about your journey. Yeah, so obviously um, we came straight out of the truck protest uh, and, and we started to see a lot of Russian troops, which we talked about uh, on your program, massing around the border. There was a debate over whether or not Vladimir Putin was going to invade. Obviously, we're no longer having that debate. Uh, and when that happened, I'm one of the global news journalists who is we call it war trained. You're never really trained for a war. Uh, but we've gone through hostile environment training that allows us to deploy into regions uh, where there is or could be a natural disaster or a war. Uh, I put my hand up because I thought what was happening in Ukraine was really important for Canadians to hear about firsthand. Uh, and I went over first to Latvia, uh, one of the countries that's very concerned about a potential Russian invasion, and where, by the way, there are hundreds of Canadian troops that are stationed and more coming. Uh, I then went down to Moldova, country I'd never been in before, which was fascinating and borders on Ukraine. They're even more worried about a potential invasion because they have a very small military and a breakaway republic called Transnistria, uh, which is has a military that's the same size as Moldova's. And it's this tiny little self-declared country uh, that's essentially Russian-funded. Uh, and then from there, I went on into Ukraine uh, and into Lviv, and uh, Lviv is relatively safe. It's a very interesting contrast. In some ways, it reminded me there of the movies you see about the Second World War because the cafes are still full in Lviv. Uh, a lot of families have fled there. There is still food. There's music in the streets. Um, it is part of the the former Habsburg Empire, so it's very beautiful. It looks like Vienna. Um, and then there are, you know, missile strikes, a curfew, and air raid sirens that go off. But there are not Russian troops in that area that are patrolling. So uh, we were in an area that was relatively safe as, as far as Ukraine goes, and that's where most international media are based. Um, and it was fascinating to see as well the access we were and weren't able to get. The Ukrainian government and military are very careful about what you are and aren't allowed to film. You can't film anything that's military, anything that's security. You cannot show where the missile strikes have happened. Um, and that's partially because they are concerned about the Russians figuring out out whether or not they're successful. As you've heard, a lot of their weapon systems and their targeting isn't actually that great. Uh, and they don't want them to know when they've missed things. So it was fascinating to be there. It was heartbreaking. We met um, dozens and dozens among the thousands and thousands of refugees who we saw who were women and children and the elderly because, of course, men uh, between the ages of 18 and 60 are not allowed to leave Ukraine. They have to stay in case they're needed to fight. Um, and just the incredible stories of sheer willpower uh, of these women taking out infants um, to flee with them. Uh, one woman who ran across a field in Kharkiv holding her six-weeks-old granddaughter um, as shells were coming in behind her as they were targeted. They managed to survive and get out. Um, but the, the stories are just reminders that this is a country that was democratic and still is democratic, was normal, 
everybody was going about their lives and all of a sudden someone shows up and starts shelling your house and you have to run for your life and make the difficult decision about whether you leave your husband, your father, your brothers behind uh, if you are a woman and, and try to flee with your children and your parents. But um, really glad we went and we're certainly hoping that we can go back again soon. Boy, that must have been incredibly powerful to really experience firsthand. I could talk to you about this all day long, but I'm curious because I always wonder this. Do they send, do you have security? Do you have bodyguards with you when you go to a country like that? Yeah, so we had um, a guy whose name we're not allowed to identify them, but he's an ex-Royal Marine with the Brits. Um, incredible person. And basically their job is to give us advice. So they're not armed at any point. We can't take guns or something. Uh, but they'll tell you now is when you need to put your body armor on. We never put ours on. Um, we, we didn't ever feel we were in a situation where he needed it. But um, this particular gentleman had been in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria very, very experienced, very good at reading a situation, knowing what might happen tactically, where is safe, how long can you be somewhere before you need to move. Uh, For example, things like taking two vehicles, not one. So if one of your vehicles is shot up, you can jump into the other vehicle and leave. Things that you wouldn't typically think about if you're a civilian. Um, And all media crews that are there have that security with them, and we're all very grateful for it. It's not to protect us if something happens, uh, but it's to advise us, so hopefully something doesn't. And when it does, which unfortunately, as we know, it has happened to a number of journalists, they're also experts in combat field medicine to be able to help people who have been injured, whether it's you or civilians around you, and provide that uh, first aid to try to keep people alive. Fascinating. One more quick question, uh, Mercedes, because, yeah, I mean, it's, it, the experience that you've had, uh, not many people get. I'm wondering, is something as simple as even meals, is this something that you have to prepare ahead of time for and have laid out? Because, you know, if, if things change on a dime, you, you have to have sustenance. Yeah, so in Lviv, um, we found, like, I was surprised. The food was amazing. It was um, plentiful. It was available. There were stores in the grocery that were sold out. I'm not sure that's so much because of the supply issue as people exactly that were taking precautions precautions and and buying food. Um, But certainly as someone who's going in, we didn't get out of Lviv. Uh, Jeff, my colleague who came in, Semple, right after me, did make it to Kharkiv and to Kiev. And when you're going to places like that, you're not sure what's going to happen. I certainly had, in case we did manage to get out there, uh, my most important one, instant coffee in my bag, because I I drink, to quote the online reporter who was with me, an alarming amount of caffeine uh, <laughs> to function. But uh, you take that, you have power bars, water. Uh, the biggest thing actually was gasoline. It's rationed. And so when we were starting to plan our trip out uh, before we had to come home, we were planning for the next crew, too, to make sure that they would have gas. Because you can only in some parts of the country, in fact, most of the country, get about 20 to 10 liters of gas at a time. So you would have to convince people to let you rent uh, their jerry cans or bring them in from Poland when the next crew was coming in, fill them up in Poland. Uh, and the cars reek of gas because you're driving around with gas in the back because you might have enough you can get Lviv to drive there and get there. That's not the issue. It's coming back where you can only stop and get 10 liters at a time. Wow. Um, so that really is one of the biggest restrictions for people trying to get out of Ukraine is to get the fuel to be able to leave. Fascinating, fascinating. Okay, I don't want to run out of time with you, so we're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff, but I wanted to get to this one, importantly, because you're <laughs> the one who blo- broke this story originally. So seeing General Jonathan Vance pleading guilty to obstruction of justice, what are the implications for his plea? And then, you know, what's being done now to change the culture in the military now that he's admitted to, that he did something wrong? 
Yeah, it was really interesting to see the guilty plea because, of course, he had denied everything that we reported. Uh, and his camp had continued to aggressively deny things we reported off the record to people. Um, and then he sat down and admitted to it. Um, and what, what this was was a joint plea between the Crown and the defense where the Crown basically said he's taking responsibility, it's going to save us court time uh, and a trial that may not happen before the Jordan principle kicks it anyhow, which is that you have to have a trial within a reasonable length of time, usually a couple of years, and this was kind of right on the cusp, um, and that they recognized his military service. The defense basically said, look, he's taking responsibility. It's very rare for a judge to get involved if the Crown and the defense have come to an agreement. That agreement's fascinating because it allowed him to plead guilty to a criminal offense, but receive no criminal record, as long as he abides by the terms of the sentence, which is one year of probation in which he must report to a probation officer, 80 hours of community service. He has to pay for the court's time and what's called a court surcharge. Um, But if he does all of those things, a year from now, he will not have a criminal record. Um, And that is not necessarily an uncommon thing that happens in guilty pleas, but it was shocking for people in this case because it was high profile. The judge said he did not, quote-unquote, want to burden John Vance with with a criminal conviction. Uh, And some people were saying, well, what about the burden on the victim? Um, He had a number of, for example, statements that were read into the record in support of him. Kelly Brennan's victim impact statement was only read a couple of lines in passing, um, and Kelly chose not to read it in court herself. So it, it was certainly something that got a lot of attention. Nothing else happens to John Vance now uh, unless he breaches the terms of, of his sentence. For example, he doesn't report for probation. Mm-hmm. On the military sexual misconduct front, we found out yesterday from the Defense Minister at Committee that they're expecting Louise Arbor's final I believe it is May 20th mm-hmm. that it's going to be coming down. Um, and so that's when we'll see her final recommendations. But there's a lot of problems even still with implementing what they're trying to do so far, which is transfer cases to the civilian system. Yeah. Because the civilian system and civilian police are saying, we already are overwhelmed with our resources dealing with sexual assault cases. And now there's potentially hundreds being dumped on us out of the military. So as far as we know, only two cases have been successfully transferred so far. Very busy times, and uh, we have to leave it there for time. But thank you so much uh, for joining us again, Mercedes. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. It's Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. For more than a decade, Russian intelligence services have carefully controlled the flow of information fed to President Vladimir Putin, leaving the Russian leader increasingly isolated. Joining us with some insight this morning is Stephen Hall, Assistant Professor in Politics, International Relations and Russia at the University of Bath. Good morning to you, Professor. Good morning, Sue. Thank you so much for being with us. Let's just start then. Okay, so if he's being fed misinformation, who actually is in charge of feeding him? this information or misinformation? Well, uh, for a while now, at least uh, I would say the past uh, seven or so years, the presidential administration has been providing daily reports uh, to Vladimir Putin, um, and those reports provide information that already fits his worldview. They've known for a long time what Putin is thinking, and these reports, as I say, fit his worldview. They're mostly positive. He honestly believes he's the most well-informed politician in the world, um, but as I say, the narrative is, is positive. 
that he receives every day. So this is where the majority of the information, I would say, comes from. There's also the security services and people close to him who have been members of his inner and outer circles for a long time now, and again, know what he wants to hear. Very interesting as far as, you know, watching what's happening on the battlefield. We Now we know that a handful of Russian generals have been killed so far in the conflict, in the invasion. But also we're hearing that up to eight generals have actually been sacked in the past month. Is this a case? Can we point to Putin's mistrust and, and paranoia when it comes to outright firing generals? I don't know if it's I don't know if it's necessarily paranoia as such. I mean, Putin isn't Stalin, at least not quite yet. But uh, in terms of the not understand, not believing that Ukraine was going to collapse in two or three days, Putin has always misunderstood Ukraine, believing it's not even a state or a people, and so the fact that the Russian army wasn't in Kiev by you know, tea time that day, um, I think Putin was very disappointed in this. And that's why the generals were removed um, and why certainly a lot of uh, generals have been killed because the army hasn't performed as it should have done. Putin was told that it's, uh, if not, it's the second best army in the world and it was, hasn't been able to subdue Ukraine. So Lots of generals were moved to the front to find out what was going wrong. And that's why they've come under fire, why they've been killed. And going back to why the eight generals allegedly were removed from their positions. Professor, do you think there's ever a chance that Russian intelligence services could just, you know, maybe think of, uh, consider a coup and, and just take over as they're the ones who are feeding all the information anyway? Russia doesn't have a uh, long history of coups. When it, you know, the last coup was August 1991 uh, under the Soviet Union, and it lasted and failed in three days. It's possible, of course, if the war continues, the Russian economy starts to uh, grind down, um, and the security services aren't paid then, of course, we're in very dangerous territory for Putin and his inner circle. But at the moment, I, I personally can't see this happening so long as he keeps on being able to pay uh, his security services and provide them with access to resources. Well, let's, let's break that down when it comes to these resources, the sanctions and uh, the hit on the economy. Uh, professor, uh, when when do you think we could see that having an impact? And we were told by experts early on, that's the long game, that isn't the, the short game. Uh, what are we talking about here? Weeks or months till we really see an impact? Well, I think that by the end of April, we'll certainly see um, the fact that goods, you know, basic food staples won't be available in Russian shops. They're being, uh, the warehouses will be empty if they're not coming in. There's no way of replenishing them. So we can assume that probably by the end of April, things will start to change, at least uh, in regards to the street. Now, the Kremlin has been very good in terms of, with the economy, a lot of the uh, major businesses are state-controlled or people close to the state control them. And these will probably be redistributed as the economic pie gets smaller and smaller and an attempt to keep as many people uh, supportive of the regime as possible. 
Professor, do you think the people of Russia are, you know, much more informed than ever before? And do you, do you think they realize, particularly, you know, as we look at the civilian deaths, the horrific, uh, you know, killing of, of citizens in Ukraine, is that information getting back to the people of Russia? In some respects, it is getting back uh, to the people of Russia. Um, but we have to remember that a lot of Russians get their news and their information from state television, which is controlled by the state. So they are showing the, uh, or they're talking about Bucha, uh, the you know massacre in Bucha, but obviously it's painted as uh, imp- done by the West, principally Britain. Britain is the country that uh, is trying to create a new Srebrenica, the uh, massacre in Bosnia way back in uh, 1995. So this is what is happening. They're being, Russian people are being told that this is just a, a fake or that it's uh, being instigated by Ukrainians and by the West. All right. Thank you so much for your time, mm-hmm. Professor. We appreciate your uh, insight and uh, joining us this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. you too. That is Stephen Hall, Assistant Professor in Politics, International Relations, and Russia at the University of Bath. And for me, one of my greatest takeaways between something that we're seeing now and something that we would have seen 80 years ago, and, and even if you go back maybe 30 years ago to the Gulf Wars in, in, the, in the early 90s, is the information that cannot be capped due to, to social media, the, sure. the connectivity. Mm-hmm. And not just that, as we've heard early on, the millennials, you know, this is where they're shining. And we'd heard reports earlier on that, for example, clamping down on the information is one thing, but somebody like Vladimir Putin, who's 70 years old this year, he's 69 now, I think it's later this year, he's 70, might not have understood that this is an app. And this is where, you know, maybe kids are listening to music. He has daughters, not that mm-hmm. he's, I'm not sure he's, he's spending quality time and taking them to see the movies or anything, but uh, they're in their 20s, I believe now, and, and have real jobs. Uh, but didn't understand that the millennials have a different way to communicate. And, you know, you can't exactly put the lid on the Internet globally. Very true. And today we should point out that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is speaking to the U.N. Security Council diplomats outraged by growing evidence that Russian forces are deliberately uh, and brutally killing civilians on the streets of Ukraine. So that will be an interesting conversation. Never before has that happened. And this is where in 2022, we never before thought we'd be, you know, talking extensively about war crimes and genocide. So true. Um, uh, so yeah, absolutely. Investigations will be continuing and, uh, you know, a lot of, he said, he said from the different leaders in the different armies for sure. Yesterday, Health Minister Jason Copping announced the departure of Dr. Verna Yu from AHS. We offered Minister Copping the opportunity to join us this morning and comment, but did not hear back. So joining us this morning to comment on the dismissal of Dr. Yu is NDP health critic and MLA for Edmonton Centre, David Shepard. Good morning to you, David. Thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. My pleasure to be here. Uh, pretty surprising news, I think, for everybody yesterday when we heard that Dr. Yu had stepped down. And later on, it's believed that, we, you know, we've certainly heard that she was let go, fired, if you will. So what do you believe is behind the dismissal? Uh, well, 
it's quite clear that this was a firing. Uh, they have confirmed that Dr. Yu is being paid severance, and severance that is only paid if she, uh, according to her contract, if she is fired without uh, without good reason. So it's clear this was a firing. Uh, and I find this deeply concerning. Our healthcare system is just in the process of trying to recover from two years of a pandemic. And frankly, throughout it, the government made decisions that pushed our healthcare system to the limits. Dr. Yu was one of the few voices that we had, I think, of, of honesty and transparency with Albertans, particularly during waves four and five. And what I hear from healthcare workers is that she was a very strong leader who helped to get us through Healthkeeper Hospital capacity up during some difficult times. And now what we have is the government is plunging the system into further chaos, removing that person who was the calm, steady voice who healthcare workers looked up to for support and leadership. And the message that they're sending is that if folks aren't going to play ball with this government in the way they want to approach things, then they're ultimately disposable. And that's really a bad message, I think, to be sending to healthcare workers as they're working so hard to hold our healthcare system together. We are speaking with NDP health critic David Shepard. And David, uh, Minister Copping stated this is part of an, quote, ambitious agenda to improve and modernize the health system. How do you view that statement? Well, you know, I I can't help but think about this government's ambitious agenda to improve and modernize some of the other things in our province, whether that's the education curriculum, whether that's the coal policy for the province and trying to force coal mining in on the eastern slopes of the Rockies. On so many fronts, this government has put their own ideology and intent ahead of what Albertans have very clearly said they want to see. So I'm deeply concerned about what they intend to do now with our health care system. Indeed, we saw when they came into office, they had a very clear agenda to force more private profit into our public health care system. They fought with doctors. They're trying to roll back wages of frontline health care workers. And as I said, caused incredible damage to our health care system by their mishandling of the COVID-19 pandemic. So if this is the government now accelerating that plan, I have real concerns about what it's going to mean for our health care system in Alberta. David, the interim president, CEO fired. Why now, do you think? Why now specifically? Uh, I think that's pretty clear. Jason Kenney is about to undergo his leadership review with the UCP, the United Conservative Party, and he's in a very bad position. And his, you know, AHS, Dr. Yu, has been under attack by some of the extreme MLAs in his own caucus, like uh, Dan Williams and Shane Getson, uh, as well as, I think, a lot of folks on the far right in the province who uh, fed into uh, conspiracy theories, misinformation about COVID-19, and made AHS a target. So this is Jason Kenney really uh, trying to sacrifice Dr. Yu, I think, as a scapegoat to try to gain uh, a bit more support for himself as his political life is on the line. Frankly, I find that disgusting and despicable. This change happening yesterday, uh, David, uh, I'm wondering, do you anticipate or do you believe we could see some more changes ahead for AHS? Well, certainly I think the government's been clear. They intend now, with only perhaps a year left in office, after all the damage they've done during a pandemic, to try to ram through all of the changes that they were unable to over the last couple of years. So certainly I'm very concerned for the continuing chaos that's continued to create across our healthcare system at a time that we're trying to recover. Certainly I'm going to be watching closely. I know that uh, healthcare workers and others are watching closely too. Indeed, a number of them plan to rally in Edmonton and Calgary tomorrow to show their opposition to this government's agenda. We thank you for your time this morning, David. Appreciate it.
Thank you. Have a good day. You too. David Shepard is the NDP health critic and MLA for Edmonton Centre. And I should just remind you, if you missed it at the beginning, we did ask UCP Health Minister Jason Copping to speak mm-hmm. with us. Uh, we did not hear back uh, to our request. No, no. and uh, you know, I can understand perhaps, you know, the busy schedules, you give everybody that opportunity, uh, but also perhaps something that does not want to be expanded on at this point. It's, it's interesting, mm-hmm. but it's also interesting to me outside looking in at AHS. AHS, I believe they do some great work. Uh, absolutely. You know, I, I think we have the best healthcare system in, in, the, in the country, perhaps in the world. There are bumps. Absolutely. The pandemic is something we've never been through. But it also, to me, really not when I say exposed, I don't mean in a nefarious way, the different layers. And to know, you know, for example, Dr. Werner Yu, uh, Werner Yu, we, we, we're up front and center. Obviously, Dr. Dina Hinshaw has been the face. Mm-hmm. Dr. Verna Yu, and we're hearing that the severance package will be something like $570,000. Which there, was her salary. Yeah, absolutely. And she was the longest running. Mm-hmm. Um, you and know, very CEO. well respected, it she, seems. Certainly. And not to knock anything she's done, but we look at these layers. There's all these different layers that perhaps need to be looked at. Maybe we can do things better when it comes to the top. And it's not to poke any holes in what she has done, but administration um you know maybe we have to streamline these things not to say i'm not putting any judgment on it but any organization can be looked at well i agree with you 100 percent. i think you know you you just have to make sure you've got the right person at the top that is a very very important job especially we're not out of this thing yet right we're not the pandemic is not over just because we've decided that we're going to open you know stores and shops and stampedes coming back and everything else so i hope uh, they are very very careful in their consideration of who will take over and who, 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 you. who, would, who is that who would want that job at this oh point? these days mm. and there you have it well being part of the lgbtq plus community is widely accepted in canada there are still places around the world where people can face serious consequences even death for being a part of that community on air contributor dave mckiver has more on a foundation that's trying to help those people in our latest installment of where we live the end of the rainbow foundation creates sponsorship circles host support groups and provides education to help lgbtq plus people settle in their homes and communities they are dedicated to all people of any sexual orientation and gender identity whether they are longtime citizens or new canadian refugees or immigrants president kelly ernst talked to me about the work they do in the community our foundation was set up to assist people um where they're not getting services elsewhere, um, and we target LGBT, the LGBT community. Um, one of the key things that we do is we try to um, create um, sponsorships um, of refugees and bring LGBT refugees from outside of Canada into Canada and have them resettle here. So that's a, a unique thing that we do that uh, not uh, many other people do across Canada. Um, and it's something unique to Calgary as well. The refugees the End of the Rainbow Foundation work with are often in dire situations before they are resettled, and the work doesn't stop once they are in Canada either. The people that um, we that contact us um, have some sort of persecution in you know places like Afghanistan, um, now the Ukraine as well, um, but also um, you know places like Iran, Tanzania, all, all sorts of different places, um, and their persecution is always based on um, being um, different um, sexual orientation or. 
a different gender um, orientation. So one of those two reasons is, is primarily, you know, why they're facing persecution. And unfortunately, the types of persecution they're facing are things like imprisonment, death threats, a whole bunch of violence. So when they get here, they're often pretty traumatized already. Um, and um, so one of the things that we have to do is not only resettle them, but make sure that their mental health needs are addressed as well. The Foundation is a unique group in the city with their connections and the impact they have in saving lives. Well, it's really important that End of the Rainbow Foundation does stuff like this because not a lot of organizations really would know where to start um, when faced with an LGBT person that are, has this kind of persecution. Um, and they may not necessarily have all the connections to the LGBT community that we do. So what we can do is set people up in the community, get them connected to the LGBT community, um, and at the same time resettle them, get their mental health needs addressed, and um, get them on their way to um, having a, um, a good life here in Canada. And so, you know, one of the things that we, we get in terms of feedback is, you know, just how valuable our services are and, you know, how life-changing um, our services can be um, to the people that are arriving. For 770 CHQR, I'm Dave McIver. Where We Live is brought to you by Furnace Family. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.